there. Welcome to Rising. Thank you for joining us. We've got a fantastic show for you today, as we do every day. We work tirelessly <laughs> all day, every day. The, the cameras stop rolling, but we're in the salt mines, you know, mining takes and interesting news stories to just keep you entertained uh, as long as we as long as we draw breath, really. Yeah, hard, hard reporting from the fact factory. That's, that's us. That's us. That is us. <laughs> All right. Well, first up, we have this new story about the National Archives Records and Administration, which is allegedly in possession of over 5,000 documents linked to President Joe Biden's alleged pseudonyms. Now, the Southeastern Legal Foundation sued the archives and requested all records pertaining to three email accounts containing fake names House Republicans say Joe Biden used to evade accountability for his pay-for-play influence scheme. Now, per the nonprofit, the archives responded to their June 2022 Freedom of Information Act request and confirmed the existence of some 5,000 records, but never released them. Meanwhile, top members of House Republican leadership say that they've launched an investigation into lead prosecutor David Weiss over his handling of the DOJ's investigation into Hunter Biden. They say Weiss's 11th hour appointment to special counsel undermines the Justice Department's claims that Weiss was always acting independently of the administration. Now, former Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin sat down with Vox News last week where he weighed in on the allegations against the Bidens. Let's watch. Do you believe that Joe Biden or Hunter Biden got bribes? I do not want to deal in unproven facts, but my firm personal conviction is that, yes, this was the case. They were being bribed. The fact that Joe Biden gave away $1 billion in uh, U.S. Uh, money in exchange for my dismissal, my firing, isn't that alone? A case of corruption. Hmm. So uh, let's start maybe with the first part of this first. Uh, so it seems like what has happened here is that a and a series a, a couple of emails uh, that were disclosed. There was evidence that Joe Biden was using other synonymous email accounts right. other than the because ones because the that email might have been. was literally sent from a, a pseudonym, a, a, a different named email. Right, right. Address. And Hunter Biden was copied on. on so you can't just this... you can't just email Joe Biden at federalgovernment.com, <laughs> and it goes to Joe Biden. Right, so there's, um, the argument is that because Hunter Biden was copied on this email, that that is potential evidence that there's no, you know, Chinese wall between his business interactions and those family interactions as he's claimed before. Now, the substance of those emails in particular seem to have been um, scheduling emails, the likes of which are hardly state secrets. I don't think that when you say, I don't have business dealings with my family, it doesn't mean that there's not sometimes political events that your family shouldn't come to as the vice president of the United States, which is a largely symbolic um, uh, position. So I don't know that we know yet if there's a there there. Obviously, if these 5,000 documents are disclosed, we'll find out fairly soon. But how plausible do you think it is that there exists this trove of documents that all of the investigators in the Department of Justice under the Trump administration declined to discover, didn't look into? Is this evidence that they performed a very poor investigation? Or is it evidence that these emails are likely not especially substantive? Well, do we know? We don't know if David Weiss saw them. Uh, and there are a lot of 
questions right now that Republicans have about his handling of this entire investigation, which led to the uh, purported sweetheart deal, which was thrown out by a judge because it was going to give Hunter Biden and thus potentially Joe Biden future a future shield mm -hmm. from the very sorts of inquiries that we are most uh, interested in having into the business ties in Ukraine and China. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, look, yes, obviously we cannot conclude that there's anything inappropriate about these emails until we've actually seen them. But I would understand people being skeptical of the administration saying there's nothing to them when the administration has said, that, you know, Biden has said, again, no knowledge of Hunter Biden's business dealings. But it's, it's so, the reality is so far from what, what they have claimed and what the, the media kind of enforced from the get-go. We now know that, yes, uh, Joe Biden did uh, call in to meetings that Hunter Biden was having with these business associates. We know there was a dinner that they said Joe Biden was not at, that this Ukrainian official was not, uh, a Burisma person was not there. We now know that's that's false. Uh, Biden was there. So the, the claims that he has made, without getting to the level of provable wrongdoing, are still—we've accumulated um, evidence that the way the administration framed this relationship is not accurate, and the media's lack of curiosity about it initially. Now they have, they do have some curiosity yeah. about it. Was was not was not right. So we shouldn't jump the gun here. We shouldn't jump the gun on any of this. It's it's true that Republicans, despite strenuous effort, have not conclusively, decisively found something that's really um, uh, 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 meaty for the purposes of charging or 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 impeaching Joe Biden himself. But. But as media criticism and criticism of the statements that the White House has made about this relationship, um, it's—I'm sorry—it's just—it's beyond what you were led to believe. And uh, I would very much be curious to see what these emails actually say. I mean, I agree, but media criticism isn't the same thing as substantive culpability, and it does well, increasingly not. feel like—I mean. You, I, I would agree that some of the Trump indictments for, are thinner than others. Mm -hmm. Let's take two of them off the board, you know? But the remaining two, at least two of them, let's say the document case is substantively not that important, but pretty clear on the violation of the law and the obstruction of justice, and then the, uh, obviously, the, the Georgia case. Mm -hmm. it, it does increasingly feel like there are going to be these allegations of, I secretly have this stuff, it, there's secretly evidence that Biden's just as bad as Trump, we're not going to reveal it to you, perhaps because once you reveal what's there, it seems like a nothing burger. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what are you waiting for? I feel we've, we've expressed similar frustrations over the UAP stuff. I think we're both very open to believing stuff, but at a certain point, just show us the goods, what's the delay. There's this Newsmax is teasing that there's an audio tape that's conclusively going to bring the Bidens down. You know, I, I let, let's hear it. Let's see it. I certainly have no interest in defending Joe Biden. I would love for him to be out of this race. I would love mm -hmm. for there to be a real primary put on by the Democratic Party, which is obviously not going to happen until Joe Biden is out of this race. But at the same time, I'm not. I'm, I'm reluctant to feed in to a smoke and mirrors campaign to say to make it seem like there's a kind of moral equivalency between the crimes that Joe Biden has been accused of, but not substantiated or been indicted or anything formal in any way, and what's going on with Donald Trump. And the, and the last thing is. I, I'm struggling with as a former attorney who did a lot of document review, the idea that the Trump Justice Department was investigating Hunter Biden, and it didn't occur to them to do the kind of word searches and document searches mm -hmm. that would have looked into other email accounts. That's like ground zero investigation. What are all of the potential 
social media, email, uh, BlackBerry, iPhone, mm -hmm. all of the accounts that one could potentially have sent messages from. And you look, you know, did the, 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 the firm you're investigating have employees that sent emails to their home address? Okay, then we have to. Well, but that's exactly what people are wondering. Us. Was David Weiss actually interested in getting to the bottom of this, getting to the truth, or was he actually trying to shield the Bidens in some way? I mean, was he a bad actor in this process? That's fine, but... As, as over, uh, whistleblowers have alleged. But over and over again, Trump appointed conservatives who everybody liked right up... Five, six months ago, conservatives were screaming for David Wise to be appointed as a special prosecutor. Yeah. And so I, I get it. Sometimes you I mean, don't... Trump appointed a lot of bad people. I think that's a criticism of him uh, that has uh, even okay. per permeated right-wing world. Sometimes you do realize that someone isn't who you thought they were after mm -hmm. the fact. I'm not saying you have to be committed to your position on someone from six months prior. Yeah. But over and over and over again, people who don't aren't able to confirm whatever pre-existing bias is in terms of what you think you're going to find about the Bidens or what you think was an, a, an appropriate legal strategy for stealing the election are suddenly written off as, oh, but they're bad people. Oh, they were bad. They were, they were out to get me. There's a great conspiracy. Mm -hmm. What if there actually just isn't a there there? That's all. Yeah, but um, they did. But, you know, again, we have to. Trump was impeached for the first time over the over over, call, you know, calling for. Uh, uh, wanting Ukraine to announce an investigation into the process that had removed this judge yeah. that Joe Biden had wanted removed yeah. that was, and that the, the bottom line of that was it was good for Burisma for that guy to get out of the way. And Joe Biden bragged about that on tape. Yeah. And, and they impeached Trump over it. And we really, we have to um, investigate this from all angles because it was a, it was a very substantive, important thing. Yep. It's shading on its face, which is why yeah. it's so curious that after four years of Trump, where he ran on an explicit promise to hunt down that sort of corruption and to target the Biden family, yeah. like he said it out loud, that was his focus. It was his Justice Department. He had four years. And we're saying now that, oh, oops, there are a couple of emails that have a Joe Biden email account that we didn't look into before, and now there are all these documents in the in the National Archives that are going to be the smoking gun. Look, Maybe. Let's see him. I'm open. Like, let's yeah. see him. I mean, I'm not defending Trump I, either on any level. I'm not defending him strategically or legally or he did not. He manifestly did not accomplish so many of the things he set out to do, in part because his personnel selection was bad across the board, and that is a good reason for the conservative movement not to embrace him as their standard bearer yet again, but yeah. I have no power in this process. Right. Well, Rising has reached out to the White House for comment and has yet to hear back at the time of this recording. Stick around. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. We have some breaking news we wanted to share with you. United States Judge Beryl Howell has granted default judgment to election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss in a defamation suit against former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani. She also granted default judgment for punitive damages and attorney's fees. This is according to released court documents. Now, these two women were the focus of a lot of attention because their names were specifically mentioned in the George, uh, in the in the Raffensperger call as people who were doing election fraud. I, I think we have a clip, actually, of Donald Trump on that call accusing these women of personally being responsible for thousands of stolen ballots. At least 18,000 that's on tape. We had them counted very painstakingly. 18,000 voters uh, having to do with uh, Ruby Friedman. That's, uh, she's a vote scammer, a professional vote scammer and hustler. Around the week of January 6th, 
The FBI informed me that I needed to leave my home for safety. I can't believe this person has caused this much damage to me and my family um, to have to leave my home that I've lived there for 21 years. The President of the United States is supposed to represent every American. So obviously you heard both uh, Donald Trump's remarks on the call and also some of uh, her own testimony describing uh, when she went through. Apparently her name and her name and the name of her daughter were brought up repeatedly, causing them to be the subject of a lot of targeted harassment. They described it as a targeted harassment campaign that ultimately forced them out of their home. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of this outcome here? I know that you have some mixed feelings about defamation law, generally speaking. Well, sure, but I mean, defamation law does exist, so every you know people have the right to pursue legal remedy to having lies told about them if they're you know if they satisfy all the criteria of defamation, which is different state by state. It's different if you count as a public person or not. Um, obviously, there is and should be a high bar to um, to to this sort of thing because. You know, in a in a free society, in a democracy, we need a lot of leeway to be able to criticize each other and say outrageous and act, indeed actually even untrue things about each other. But if it you know crosses a line, if it's so malicious and reckless and done in in a way where the the person knows that they're not telling the truth about it, of yeah. course, I'm I'm sure that will be I'm sure that's the defense here is that is Giuliani and Trump and et cetera. Um, again, it's a little bit like the indictment. Well, it just wasn't true. That, uh, and, and, and in this in this instance, with the defamation yeah. case, just the fact of it not being—it's just—it's just fundamentally wasn't true. So here's a little bit well, more right, color about what Giul it has to go beyond that. Giuliani was actually saying about her. Uh, this was from a write-up in the Intercept earlier this month. Uh, the latest indictment says that on December 10th, 2020, Trump lawyer and advisor Rudy Giuliani claimed at a Georgia House of Representatives committee hearing that Freeman, Moss, and an unidentified man were, quote, quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine to be used to infiltrate the crooked Dominion voting machines. So uh, part of the concern here, the critique of him, is not just that he lied about her, you know, stuffing ballots, but that there seemed to be a targeting of these two uh, because of stereotypes right. about black women and drug use and welfare queens and the like to gin up antagonism for them in support yeah. of Donald Trump. So for it to be defamation, libel, et cetera, it, it has to be, um, the thing you say has to be, um, it has to be an act, it, it has to be a, a factual, uh, claim, not just opinion, not just describing someone, you know, using hyperbolic terms or, or, or insulting them or something. So an actual, you know, s claiming that this person did took this action with ballots or with drugs or with USB port or whatever it was, um, does satisfy that element of defamation because it's a factual claim rather than just yeah. there. If, if he just said, She's a liar or a fraud sure. or something. That's, you know, again, that might not be true, but it's not defamation. So uh, additionally, uh, so as a consequence of the choice to continue to focus on these two women, uh, part of part of what ended up happening was that on January 4th, this Trump supporter named Trevian Kuti, uh, he was a former publicist for uh, Kanye West and R. Kelly, traveled from Chicago to Atlanta to try to meet Freeman. According to the indictment, Kuti had been recruited for the job uh, by the head of Black Voices for Trump, who's 
also been charged. I think we've seen his mugshot circulating mm -hmm. around. Um, Kuti went to Freeman's house in Atlanta. When she couldn't find her, Kuti told Freeman's neighbor that she was a crisis manager trying to help. Later that day, Kuti, according to the indictment, reached Freeman by phone, said that she was in danger and that she should meet Kuti at a police station um, and that she, quote, needed protection and could help her. And so there was this, there was this bizarre, yes, bizarre. Uh, deception. It's unclear what she planned to do um, when she got her to the police station. Who knows what's going on here? But it does People really seem like there was a coordinated um, uh, right. campaign here, uh, the arguably intimidation campaign here. It's part of the charges that are in the Georgia right. indictment that there was a targeted campaign against uh, these two women. And at least here against Giuliani on a defamation basis, well, they were vindicated. I mean, none of that matters from the standpoint of, I mean, maybe it's his fault in a moral or philosophical sense. It doesn't really matter. Um, if, if the underlying speech is not defamatory, but if it is defamatory, then uh, perhaps that gets factored into a, to a, a judgment, damages, et cetera. Yeah. And it sounds like there's a compelling case that it is, in fact, defamatory. So it won't, not, doesn't surprise me at all to see um, them succeeding for that. You got to be careful. Yeah. So, you know, people, we journalists, we, all, we, we know we have to be really careful when we make claims. That's why a lot of you know, our writing, our comments, the things we read on the camera, our headlines um, get, get you know, allegedly, reportedly, according to. You know, we, we don't do that just for our own health, but to, but to protect ourselves against um, liability risk. And it's, yeah. some, it's something you have to do. So do you think the outcomes like this, where courts are also opining on the lack of truth in the underlying claim, right? Truth is a defense, they weren't doing this. Go some way to disabusing the 70% of Republican voters who believe that Donald Trump stole the election, in part because they believed rhetoric like this about ballot boxes being stuffed by uh, cr crackhead black women in Georgia. You know, do, do you think that these kinds of outcomes, where again, courts are not validating the Trump camp's view of what happened in 2020, will help to pierce the public perception among so many Republicans that the election was in fact stolen? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I think now when Republicans and Trump, even Trump, make the claim that the election is stolen, I mean, I, I'm recalling the Caitlin Collins uh, town hall with Trump. Um, he says he still believes it was stolen. He mostly talks about um, things that are substantively true, I, but I don't think would call it so about, he's talking about, he, he'll say it's election interference because of, um, because of the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story being, uh, being suppressed and all of the censorship and all of those things. Now, I, I wouldn't, I think those things are, ha those things did happen and were bad. I think that's substantively different than the, it, you know, it was stolen because votes were misplaced or something. But I've mostly seen that substitution in rhetoric. I, it wouldn't surprise me if the, however many Republicans say the election was stolen, that's what they're talking about nowadays, but. At that town hall, I am pretty confident that he specifically brought up the briefcases full of ballots. It's not just, uh, I think that the Hunter Biden story being suppressed cost me the election. He is specifically still doubling down on it. And I believe also in the most recent Tucker Carlson interview that he did as counter-programming to the GOP debate, he continues to, t to, to push the line that he believes there was substantive election interference, actual fraud at the ballot box. And, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how that pans out. But I do think it's unfortunate that, when it, given the seriousness of, of that kind of a claim, I don't fault Trump supporters who would believe him. 
He's so specific and he's so determined and insistent with those kinds of claims. So I do wonder as some of these court cases pan out and increasingly there's specific you know, judicial um, undermining of his arguments in these areas, that people who have been misled by him into believing there really was election fraud, substantive, real, tangible, ballot-stuffing-style election I mean, fraud are going to no. be frustrated with him and turn on him a little bit, because he really has actively mis misled the public about what, what, what was there. I mean, it's very clear that a general election audience, um, moderates, swing voters, independents, people outside the hardcore um, very conservative constituency. Uh, you're right about those people have no no appetite whatsoever for the things he says about the 2020 election, and that is a major liability for him if he is to be again become a general election candidate. And um, but that's not <laughs> that's not sinking in so far with Republican primary voters. I'd love yet. to see a question at the next GOP debate. Do you believe that there that, that Trump was accurate when he said that there were ballot boxes being stuffed? Those kinds of things. I do think that that, that would help at, at a GOP debate. Yeah. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Catastrophic Hurricane Adalia made historic landfall this morning, hitting Florida's Big Bend region, where the state's peninsula and panhandle connect. Governor Ron DeSantis warned residents to hunker down as they brace for the storm. Let's listen. The National Hurricane Center expects storm surge to reach up to 16 feet in some areas of the Big Bend region, uh, that level of storm surge is life-threatening. Do not go outside in the midst of this storm. Uh, if it's calm uh, where you are, it may be because you are in the eye of the storm, and those conditions will change very, very quickly. So wherever you are, uh, hunker down and, and don't take anything for granted here. This is a very, very powerful storm. Yesterday, President Biden said he and DeSantis were in close contact as Adalia took aim at the Sunshine State. Let's watch. We're in constant contact. I had the director of FEMA in here today earlier talking about it. It's uh, there's going to be, uh, I think we're worried about the, the surge, the ocean surge. We don't know exactly yet. It's hour to hour we're watching this. And uh, but I told the governor that and the mayor. Uh, and, regions that are likely to be hit first, that we're there as long as it takes. We're going to make sure they have everything they need. Over 20 counties in western and central Florida were ordered to evacuate and shelter from the storm, which has been downgraded to Category 3 from Category 4, but not before it brought torrential rain, 130 miles per hour winds, causing widespread power outage and untold damage. Here's reporter Ryan Bass from our sister broadcast, News Nation, reporting from Tampa. Officials are asking people, please stay off the roads. If you didn't evacuate, now is not the time to do so, even though we are starting to see this storm surge. By the way, you heard the director of emergency management, Kevin Guthrie, from the state of Florida here just a few moments ago on our air. He said we are already seeing two to three feet of storm surge here in the Tampa Bay area. And just to give you an idea, as I start to back up further and further, if I literally backpedal all the way to the street, I'm going to be in almost waist deep water from what we've seen coming over here on Bayshore Boulevard. So, uh, Adrian Markey, we're going to have much more coverage here from South Tampa. This is some of the worst flooding we've seen, including Pinellas County on the other side of the bridge. And officials like Kevin Guthrie said that it's only going to get worse. Adelia is expected to hit part of South Carolina by Thursday morning. Meanwhile, DeSantis, who, as we all know, of course, is also 2024 GOP presidential hopeful, 
has paused his campaign to focus on his state amid the Category 3 storm. This as he currently stands at about 13 percent support, according to the latest Real Clear Politics polling average, second, of course, to Donald Trump, who has amassed an average of 54 percent. Yeah, so first off, I, I just want to say, some, I love when governors—I mean, obviously, this is a, a horrible crisis that people are engaged in, but I do think that you see a, a more appealing— credible side of governors when they are in these kind of crises, when they're talking about real emergencies and working with the federal government to deliver for the people in their state. All of the awkwardness about, I'm going to reject federal money on, his, on principle and all of that, that goes out the window when there's a real emergency. And it's nice to see the, it's the idea of a government where someone like Ron DeSantis is working with Joe Biden and the federal government to make sure the people of Florida stay safe. It, it's a nice break from all of the tension and the conflict, just off the bat. Um, secondly, I mean, obviously, on the tip of everybody's mind, on the tip of everybody's tongue, is the question of whether or not the, the increasing frequency, duration, and strength of hurricanes in the Atlantic is evidence of a climate crisis that is unavoidable, even if you live in a red state. In fact, states like Florida are specifically vulnerable to hurricanes, and what what is the tension between what we saw on the, the debate stage last week when so many conservatives were unwilling to acknowledge that climate change is a man-made phenomenon, and the reality that the people of Florida, many of whom are conservative in a conservative state, are suffering from the consequences of doing nothing to address policy-wise mm -hmm. the change in climate. Yeah. Um, look, I think— the fact that human activity contributes uh, or worsens climate change is pretty well established. And despite what we saw on the debate stage, actually, I think many Republican political officials, maybe it's not for whatever reason you're not going to acknowledge it on the debate stage, but do acknowledge it. or I mean, they should acknowledge it because it is the case. And we should try to take reasonable steps to, um, to lessen the negative impacts and to not, you know, to, to lessen the global rise in temperature with, you know, whatever policies make sense. Um, you know, that said, obviously, there are, you know, hurricanes are not a new phenomenon. There's—I know some scientists argue that the extreme weather is getting worse. Um, of course, we have to, you know, reckon with the fact that we actually—we do have fewer casualties from extreme weather because we have a more technologically advanced society, which does also contribute to climate change, but it's a it's a trade-off that people will debate what is the right way to balance all of these interests. Yeah. I mean, another interest is, is uh, Florida homeowners. Um, there was a recent piece in The Guardian, I saw this reported out in other places, about uh, how home insurance prices are skyrocketing in Florida. I saw a Fox News host actually recently, I think a weatherman, explaining that it's almost impossible for normal people to live in parts of the state right now because the insurance premiums are so high. Uh, it is inevitable. Uh, it has always been, of course, the case that hurricanes existed in Florida. But there is something that is obviously reflected in the increasing premium prices that this is not business as usual. Something has well, changed that has made those parts of the country right. increasingly unlivable well, here's a for people who aren't you. wealthy. What is so wrong with that? If I mean, is the market sending a signal that this is not a good that this is a really expensive place to live? This is a dangerous place to live. Then it then it gets de-incentivized and people can live elsewhere. Is that such a bad thing? It, if people who used to be able to live in their hometowns can't live there anymore because it's their insurance premiums are too high and their homes keep getting destroyed by hurricanes, is that a bad thing? I mean, there's it's a big country. There are areas that'll be more affordable. I mean, I don't. We can't. 
we should not subsidize people living in likely flood destructive zones, uh, right? That's, that's, that's more my, costly that's, for the whole. I'm not arguing that that should be the case. I'm arguing that we can do something to stop the increasing encroachment of climate catastrophes, mm -hmm. and we should we should do that because what we're basically saying is we're allowing oil. Companies, I thought you were advocating an intervention into the insurance market. No, we're we're what we're doing is we're. The, those homeowners are internalizing cost and subsidizing big oil and gas polluters in these industries who are able to make it so that they don't have home value anymore. They have to pay premiums because of the behavior of polluters that aren't made to pay the consequences of that because it's too attenuated from what they've actually done to the environment. So that's that's the problem. And I do think that there are a whole lot of, increasingly, we're going to be people who feel firsthand the impacts of climate change in a nonpartisan way. I mean, Republicans and Democrats are all going to be hit, hit by the same wildfires and floods and storms. And I wonder how that's going to affect people's attitudes toward climate change when it's so personal and not this abstraction projection into the future. We saw during the GOP debate um, the company that was monitoring people's favorability as they watched using the dial system, there was that huge fall off when there was a denial of climate change, um, even among, uh, especially among independent voters. Uh, so, you know, obviously the, what's important to focus on now is the impending tragedy. Um, I hope everybody is able to stay safe and listen to Governor DeSantis' warnings and not engage in any risky behavior and take this, this, this hurricane in particular very seriously. But there's definitely a longer political question to be had about what to do to protect the interests of the people that are living in that state. We'll have more rising right after this. A 12-year-old boy in Colorado was removed from school for wearing a don't tread on me patch on his backpack. Let's watch some of the video of the matter. Was this went viral, crazy viral, on social media yesterday? The reason that they do not want the flag, the reason we do not want the flag displayed, mm -hmm. is due to its origins with the slavery and slave trade. That is what was um, that's the reasoning behind them. The Gatsby flag. The don't tread on me. Okay. Which is the Gatsby book. Okay. Um, okay. So he, he, um, he's, what's going to happen if he doesn't take it off? He, I mean, he is able to go. I was actually just telling him, like, I was upset that he was missing so much school. I'm like, ah. So I asked if, can he just take his stuff out of his bag and go back to class? <laughs> like, I just want him to go back to class. The bag can't go back. It's got a patch on it because we can't have that in and around other kids. It has nothing to do with slavery. That's like the Revolutionary War patch that was okay. displayed when they were fighting the British. Like that wasn't, that's the revolution. Maybe you're thinking of like the, um, the Confederate pet. The last thing I want is him out of class. Yeah, like, I know that's he all should. He, he takes his classes seriously. Yes. He studies, he, does, he wants to get straight A's. He did that. He made honorable when he was here before. Yep. He intends to do that again right now, but it's hard because he keeps missing class for this. So I understand that. Yeah, and I mean, we teach him to always stick up for your beliefs. And I mean, you're going over the revolution this for seventh grade. I mean, the founding fathers stood up for what they believed in against unjust laws. This is unjust. 
The director of the Vanguard School, where Jaden, the boy in question, attends, said via email that the patch was, quote, disruptive to the classroom environment. Libertas Institute President Connor Boyack first publicized this situation, shared an email dis uh, from district officials that was sent to Jane's mother, which claimed the Gasman flag is considered an unacceptable symbol. Colorado Governor Jared Polis tweeted yesterday, the Gadsden flag is a proud symbol of the American Revolution and iconic warning to Britain or any government not to violate the liberties of Americans. It appears on popular American medallions and challenge coins through today, and Ben Franklin also adopted it to symbolize the union of the 13 colonies. It's a great teaching moment for a history lesson. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has declined to rule that the Gadsden flag was a racist symbol, according to Reason Magazine's reporting. My reporting. I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this seems to be really like non-con, like a, yeah. this is like a not disputable. And we should sort finish the story. Issue. So, so the day after this happened, Monday, I believed. Um, again, it, we're talking about it because it went very viral, like absurdly viral on social media, um, due to the blowback. You know, even the governor of the state weighed in that it, it's not actually a racist symbol. Um, he, the, the, the district apologized, admitted they had made a mistake, and the little boy was able to wear his backpack the next day. There's no problem. So it's, the issue is solved. Nobody has to worry about it. Yep. Um, but um, it was a story of considerable interest. It, it, was, a, it, it, was, it was a story. It was um, I dif think <laughs> difficult to see what it was. I mean, in fact, in the, in the clip that we played, I mean, the teacher obviously was just ignorant about what the right. thing was. Um, that it's like a human error issue. I, I would be interested to know if there was something systemic that was happening in the school board or anything like that. That would be a problem. I would agree that that needs to be mm -hmm. rooted out. But, you know, it sounds like she alerted the parents immediately. The mother was able to come to the school immediately. The teacher said, I wanted to get this sorted as soon as possible to get the kid back in the room. They seemed to have a respectful conversation. The mother, the teacher was corrected and everything went on per usual. It sounds like it almost like it was ideally handled, apart from obviously it's not ideal for the right. kid to be singled out in the first place. Right, although, I mean, district officials defended their position until they got the blowback. You know, they sent that email saying, oh, look, no, it's a, it's a racist symbol. Um, and again, you know, and to be clear, so this is, the Gasman flag is this, is the snake mm -hmm. that like, says, don't tread on me. It kind of, a, again, it originates as a British, uh, American Revolution kind of image. It's been appropriated by all sorts of people all over the years. I'm sure there's some white supremacist group who has used it. Their left groups have used it. Um, actually, LGBT groups have, uh, have a, there's a rainbow version of it now. They've used it. It's, it's like a general symbol at this point. Um, so it's yeah, they, and the initial purpose was they were trying to find a symbol for America and federalism that didn't seem to rank the states of in terms of importance or priority and, and represented how equal they all were going to be in the new country, and so. There's a the version of it um, in an editorial cartoon that Benjamin Franklin famously wrote and commented on that has it like broken up into various chunks, like a dead snake with all the different states connected. Yeah, uh, arguing there it is on screen. Yeah. yeah, arguing that together we're whole and powerful apart. Mm -hmm. We're fragmented in a dead snake on the ground. So yeah, it, 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 it's a very common reason. The uh, mag so it's a it's a popular symbol among symbol. libertarians. Yeah. Uh, reason the libertarian magazine I also write for. We use it as our like what 404 error page. If you accidentally go to a wrong page, <laughs> Link on broken. The, yeah, it's, it's the snake being yeah. stepped on. There's some real funny ones. If you see the 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 snake actually being stepped on, and it says I specifically requested the opposite of this. <laughs> I have not seen it's that. a great. Uh, it, this is why I was interested in the story. I like the yeah. I like the symbol. Look, I I I. Yeah. I I haven't really seen anybody arguing 
against this, yeah. right? So it's a little curious why there's so much outrage. I haven't seen anybody say, no, 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 this is a racist symbol. This kid is terrible. Cancel him. Yeah. Um, it does seem like one uninformed teacher who made a mistake and and it's been corrected. I mean, and I do think I did see some liberals, you know, frustrated because there have been so many stories about girls that were had the had dress codes applied to them uh, yeah. in a way that was more harsh than the way that it's applied to boys. Um, they're wearing the well, same I'm outfits. All that. I'm, I'm sure you are, but that there, there was a whole genre of stories like this that the, mm -hmm. the left tends to cotton on to. There was a really horrific case um, a couple of years ago, maybe just a year or so ago, where a little uh, mixed-race half-black girl had her head shaved by her teacher who said that her it's hair terrible. was unkempt. And I think her parents got like a million-dollar settlement out of that Good. one. Um, there was the story many years back, I must say around 2014, 15, 16-ish, uh, about how so many traditional black hairstyles were considered to be off code in the military and black service mm -hmm. women were struggling with how to manage that and 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 the only recently I think the Crown Act equalized some of that treatment in the military. So there are so many instances where people have legitimate grievances about being treated differently in these kind of contexts where there's codes of conduct, et cetera. And I'm happy for all of those to be resolved in the fav in favor of the individuals yeah, the, making complaints, um, including this one. So I did see a little frustration, like, oh, now you care about what's happening in well, schools. But you know, substantively, I think this is a slam dunk, easy mistake that, and I'm glad it got corrected. It's uh, it's frustrating and unfortunate. College students' First Amendment and free speech rights have been exhaustively litigated in in their favor. Mm -hmm. um, the broad protection on a Supreme Court basis of students' free speech rights at the college level. The K through 12 level, the court has not been nearly as protective of students' free speech rights. There, it's that, and this is why the district um, uh, fell back on this argument. There's a substantial um, uh, ability that's been recognized by courts, wrongly in my view, but has been recognized by the court for schools to curb students' free expression rights in the name of preventing disruption. Um, there was the famous, the bong hits for Jesus Supreme Court case. Remember that one? No. Uh, where they, uh, where a student had a nonsense sign that just said bong hits for Jesus. I think it was during like a public, uh, it was at some outdoor activity that was taking place and, uh, and um, it, he was punished for it. He sued, it went all the way to the Supreme Court and they ruled that he couldn't have that sign because it was disruptive and it was, even though it was a nonsense message that he just um, Yeah, I don't know. Together. I don't know so how a, I feel about it legally, but it does seem to me I would like to more broadly protect. to say that there should. I, I'm actually oh. A bit oh, in oh. favor of dress codes in school. I, I always wish that I had a uniform. I feel like there are hmm. class issues where people come in. You know, the the I class mean, discrepancies uniform, between kids school. is well. Yeah, obviously, yeah. you're not going to have it in a public school context. But class discrepancies between kids that get exacerbated when one kid can come in wearing a $400 jacket and another kid hmm. is not able to afford those kinds of things. I do think obviously there there are kinds of clothing that are distracting, not because girls' bodies need to be policed, but because they say things like, we weren't allowed to wear beer and alcohol logos, curse words, things like that. I grew up in Kenya, and we, there's a very popular shirt for Tusker beer, a, a local beer that's what considered one of the best uh, African beers and wins uh, global prizes all the time. And it's an iconic shirt. Like, every tourist who goes to Kenya gets one of these shirts, and a lot of the kids would have them. And I remember them being all these fights about, well, seriously, we can't wear our Tusker shirts? But you can appreciate why you wouldn't mm. want a bunch of uh, seventh graders walking around with a big bottle of beer on their chests. 
I, I don't know. I, I do think that it's kids, it's children, and there's a, a, sort of a, a part of school that's about modeling mm. appropriate behavior in a workplace, in a professional setting, around adults and things like that. But, you know, placing stigmatizing meaning on symbols that don't exist. I mean, we all know what beer is. It's illegal for kids. <laughs> but the don't yeah. tread on me stuff, this is a slam dunk. I'm glad it got worked out. All right. rising right after this. All hail King Donald. <laughs> MSNBC's Rachel Maddow forecasted what former President Donald Trump's future in political office could look like. Let's listen to this. The election means one of two things, if this is the way he's going to approach it. Either he loses the election and he goes to prison, or he wins the election, he doesn't go to prison, and is that for life, that he gets to be president? Will we keep having more elections or no? If every election is a new opportunity for him to go to prison, do you think he allows us to have new elections? I mean, if those are the stakes, if winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? I mean, if Trump and his supporters see the stakes as losing and going to prison or winning and being president and probably president for life, how should we expect that he and the Republican Party and Republican officials in swing states are going to handle the conduct of that election that Trump may very well lose? President for life? What? How's yeah. he going to be president for life? So this has been... He's going to cancel the elections. That's what she thinks. Well, people have been pointing to this as hyperbolic and the kind of fear-mongering yeah. that Democrats are using to, you know, encourage people to go to the polls. Um, let's just take it seriously for one second, though. Mm -hmm. There has been a history of various leaders across the world and right here in the United States of America advocating and successfully advocating to extend term limits so that they could stay in office longer. Um, Republican turned Democrat turned whatever he is now, Michael Bloomberg, did this in New York City. He got the city council to vote to extend uh, term limits so that he could have another consecutive term in office. It is a thing that people can get consent to do. I'm not I'm not opining on we how got, it is. We got it in our managed. constitution. Not, I want to be Doug Burgum here without <laughs> my pocket constitution and say, sorry, you can't do that as constitutional member. I mean, we would it would take... He's never going to get, what, two-thirds of the states have to ratify constitutional amendments? Yeah, well, people would, have, with that. people would have thought it was impossible to lose an election, to stay in office once the election, the votes are tallied and you've actually lost the election. It is. But they are concerned, looking at how close this uh, plan was that he's now being indicted for, to intentionally create ambiguity about really the vote count. to working, though. It's, it's interesting to play out in a world where Mike Pence played along and created the the ambiguity. Remember, the ambiguity wasn't the goal. Mm -hmm. um, they understood, the, I think the quote was dead on arrival, that the fake slates of electors weren't going to stand up meaningfully to any right. kind of cl close scrutiny right. or review. The confusion was going to allow for them allow to, them to kick it to the it states. To the, and then once yeah. it's kicked to the voting to the by state legislature, to the House, the, voted right. by state in the House, then the Supreme Court is the one that opines as to whether or not that vote tally was appropriate. And given the political nature of the Supreme Court, the idea being that they, they could very reasonably decide in his favor, just like Bush v. Gore. And many people yeah. understand that to be a wrongly I mean, held Bush v. Decision. v. Gore was a genuine—I mean, was a <laughs> the narrowest election ever, you know, adjudicating yeah. a, a genuinely 
tricky situation where we're talking about like a few hundred votes that were weirdly and accidentally but obviously cast for the wrong person because of how that stupid county in Florida made their ballots. Um, yeah. That was so that think, one could have gone either way. You, sure. So you think though, with the current Supreme Court we have, you were confident that they wouldn't have upheld a Trump verdict. Yeah, I'm pretty confident. What, what's the basis of that? I because mean, they've rebuffed him over and over. How was the Supreme Court rebuffed? They Donald didn't. They Trump didn't want to hear any of his challenges. Right? They just rejected them. Right. This is at the different. Supreme Court level. But this they is, rejected him. Mm, this is different. And what we've seen is the Supreme Court. We saw there was that. Um, uh, Alito uh, deep dive, I think, in New York Magazine uh, earlier this year, maybe at the end of last year, that was a, a kind of more personalized insight into the public statements that these judges have increasingly been making, increasing polarization of the court, increasingly uh, bold with these corruption charges against um, mm -hmm. uh, Clarence Thomas and the like, increasingly not recusing themselves for, from cases where they are, are obviously having co conflicts of interest, and increasingly writing judgments that even conservative legal, legal scholars say strain the limits of the law, breaking dramatically with precedent, including precedent of other conservatives of, of yesteryear. So, I mean, I mean I, the Supreme Court routinely does rule against. Um, it, it, it does sometimes rebuff uh, conservative influence. All right, so it sometimes rebuffs conservative influence is the kind of ambiguity that makes someone like Rachel Maddow, understandably, I think, not in the, in the, in the perhaps in the context of uh, uh, extending term mm -hmm. limits, but in the context of generally, generally being able to steal elections, tweak outcomes makes people not especially confident that the Supreme Court is going to be a last bulwark in favor of democracy. Are you willing to roll the dice on that sort of thing? I think, I, I really do think this most recent well, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a supporter of Trump, but I'm, I also do trust in the institution of the Supreme Court Oof. to prevent his installation as permanent dictator, in fact. It's, it's funny because after 1-6, there was this mockery of the idea that Trump could really actually steal the election, um, and that a characterization of liberals as being histrionic because they were like, well, politics doesn't work like that. Just because I have possession of Congress right. with a mob, it doesn't mean that that magically makes Donald Trump president. And of course that's true. And there was this a t a suggestion that as various aspects of that day got debunked, oh, they didn't really have zip ties, for instance. That was more and more evidence that there was no real danger of the of the election being overturned. Right. I mean, there, 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 really... was, there was no real danger of the right. of but, the but, but, riot causing the election. This yeah. is exactly the point that I'm trying to get to. Yeah. But for and that months, was emphasized by liberals. But, but for months, it was, well, the liberals were wrong about the zip ties. The liberals were wrong about how many people had weapons. The liberals were wrong about who instigated this. Trump has plausible deniability. He said to protest peacefully. Therefore, there was no real risk. What we are now finally getting to, mm -hmm. with the context of the specific indictment claims, is that it wasn't about 1-6. And when you look at all of the weeks leading up to 1-6, where, during which Trump and the co-conspirators were allegedly forging documents and um, you know, squeezing election officials and, and doing all of the kinds of things that now have these RICO, uh, have amounted to these RICO charges. I'm, I'm sorry, it does seem like Donald, uh, Mike Pence played a really pivotal role in preventing things from going over the edge. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay his role in that, but it, it, I mean, the transition happened with all the usual fanfare, lack of, uh, it, was, it was not surprising it happened. And, you know, everyone involved in this effort is now being, like, exhaustively prosecuted, right? 
Um, no, but they didn't get off scot-free. Trump and all the co-conspirators, they're now going to face legal proceedings over and over again. It's not like, oh, we almost pulled it off. Better luck next time. Next time we'll have a better but, strategy. But, Robbie, saying two years later they're being indicted, great. On the, at the time it happened, we were close. We now know. I mean, I think this a lot of the stuff came out during the 1-6 commission, but it was just not uh, at 1-6 hearings, but it wasn't emphasized. We now know that if Pence had agreed with the plan, if, if Pence had gone along with the memo that outlined this, outlined this plan, at very least, we would have been in a situation where probably through the proposed inauguration date and all of that, mm -hmm. we were still working through the reality situation. There were, there's a significant— what do you mean, How do we know that? We, we, we literally don't know. That's the point that I'm making, but it's okay. a possibility. The fact that there is a non-zero chance that there would have been ongoing discussion about whether or not Joe Biden was duly elected because Mike Pence and this alternative reality said, no, this, this, the House gets to Biden vote and the House votes for immediately followed suit, uh, filed suit. Yeah, and now we're at the Supreme Court. This is the yeah, entire and point. And what the Supreme Court— said that Joe Biden is the president. I, 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 don't, I really don't know how you can say that with confidence. I really don't know how you can say that with confidence, because we never should have been in that. We never should get to that point. And but well, for Mike that's Pence, fine. You can say we never should get to that point. We would we would have gotten to that point. We had fully fraudulent, lying groups of people who who made fake documents, lying about what the vote, vote totals that were were in their and state. To the extent they did that, they're going to go to prison. Knowingly false, like knowingly false. And they were told this. Some of these people were like told only if the court judgments in those states turn up some fraud will I agree to this document being submitted, knowing that there was no evidence at the time, but saying, okay, fine, if it if it comes out, then I'll put my name to this document, and then had it submitted anyway against their wishes. So there's a fraud upon some of these conservative co-conspirators who were like in the wrong, but not necessarily willing to commit full hog to election mm -hmm. overturning. Like, th this is the context that we're in. So the idea that, like, oh, that's a bridge too far, that kind of claim is histrionic. Like, I agree that, that Rachel Maddow is overstepping here. But this is the world—I I don't want to pretend, like, her hysteria doesn't have some basis in reality because of the way that certain Republicans in leadership have behaved, and only because of the integrity of certain other conservatives in leadership, including many members of Trump's DOJ, who were telling him— full-throatedly that he was wrong about these uh, election claims, did we not end up in this ambiguous alternative reality? Mm. I don't think that alternative reality was very likely, but obviously we can't know. What, what percent of Republicans still believe that the that, but that doesn't that matter Biden for wasn't. the process. The process is the process. I'm making a different point. So what percentage of Republicans—I think it's a majority of Republicans or close to half that still think that well, the election lot, was but, stolen I mean, there, there are Democratic— Top at the topest at the, the highest level who think Hillary Clinton and Stacey okay. Abrams and other people. So they're just, their belief in it is not. That, that's fine. The point is here. It is um, percentage of Republicans who think Biden's 2020 win was Ill illegitimate ticks back up to near 70 percent. This is yeah. a poll from August 3rd. I mean, 70 percent. Right, poll Democrats in January of 2016. So this is the question. If imagine <clears throat> if it had even gotten farther, and if there had been a vote in the House that corroborated that Donald Trump won, how much that would have shored up these beliefs. Now imagine a world where Donald Trump is saying, but the election was stolen from me. What kind of public support can he get to continue to stay in office? I mean, that's that's where people are going with this. When you have the masses of the public believing a lie— I mean, Republicans who commit lie, to that messaging can't even get elected in—, in districts that are held by Republicans in states that vote Republican, so. I don't understand how you can attribute that to simply election denialism. When Donald Trump, the, the king of election denialism, is polling at 40-odd points ahead of everybody else 
in the in the race, and also, even though he wasn't even there on the debate stage, managed to peer pressure almost everybody on the stage into agreeing that he's the 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 but subject of an unfair political prosecution. But it's a general election liability. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. It's a huge general election liability. We will have more rising right after this. Sweden's controversial pandemic policies have allegedly paid off, according to a new study, as the U.S. and much of the world hunkered down at home due to the coronavirus pandemic. The country, Sweden, had a very different response to COVID that did not include strict lockdowns, mask mandates, and school closures. Senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Johan Norberg, investigated how the Nordic nation managed, posting on Twitter yesterday, quote, how did Sweden fare during the pandemic? Back then, the world was shocked by our openness. New York Times called us a cautionary tale. Trump said Sweden is suffering very greatly, but we never heard how it all turned out. Now I've looked. Sweden did better than others. Here to detail what he found out about Sweden's fate post the pandemic pandemonium is Johan uh, himself. Welcome, Johan. Thank you. All right. So first, uh, walk us through the decision making as you understand it in Sweden. Why was there a choice to take such a different approach than much of the rest of the world? Well, what Swedish authorities said at the time and the Social Democratic government said at the time was that Sweden didn't take a strange, uh, unprecedented decision on openness, but others, other countries took a strange, unprecedented decision to lock down their countries. That was not something that was in the plans for a pandemic. So it seems like the Chinese decision to lock down the economy, put people under house arrest, sort of got people and countries to, to panic and thinking that this might be the only way to, to stop the virus, whereas Sweden didn't throw out the manual, but basically stuck to the plan, tried to protect the vulnerable, but keep society, schools and businesses open. So there was a different policy in terms of requirements. Is, is your argument that there was still uh, much you know, voluntary, um, you know, neighborly good behavior that the people of Sweden adopted without having been forced to do it by the government? That's my, my first question. Then my second question, um, you know, take a, walk us through the numbers a little bit, because I remember uh, you know, people having concerns about Sweden having a higher infection rate or a death rate um, early on, maybe during the first year, but is the argument that that equalized over time and then it's, you know, it's harder to say after the whole duration of the pandemic that the experience in Sweden was really any wor worse than anywhere else? Yes, Sweden did have restrictions and regulations, but not at all to the same extent than that other countries did. It was mostly reliant on recommendations. Try to stay at home, work from a distance if you can do it, avoid public transportation if possible. But there wasn't any kind of government enforcement of those recommendations. But when you look at things like mobility data from our uh, cell phone providers and other things, it seems like Swedes adapted voluntarily almost to the same extent as our European neighbors did. Uh, originally, in the first few months, and that's when New York Times and Donald Trump explained that Sweden was suffering heavily, becoming a pariah state, basically, uh, yes, Sweden got more of the infections, uh, more deaths than, than at least many neighboring countries. Then it was what Swedish authorities said that is that this will even out in the long run because no one can completely avoid social interaction for 
for for years. Uh, and that's why it's important to look at total mortality, excess deaths above a previous trend. And then what we see remarkably is that Sweden's excess death rate is one of the lowest in Europe, according to some calculations, the lowest in Europe and less than half of America's. Hmm. Yeah, help, help me understand. You mentioned earlier that there were still protections for vulnerable people. I'd like to know more about what those were. Of course, Sweden does also have um, universal health care system. You're not experiencing the situation we have here where people go medically bankrupt with some regularity. Med medical bankruptcy is not a term that exists in m most of Europe in the developed world. Um, but Help, help us understand how it was the case that people still managed to feel like there were protections absent mandates, and what was the compliance rate, as you understand it, for people using those kinds of interventions, whether it be masking or working from home and the like? Yeah. Well, when it comes to um, protecting vulnerable groups, the priority was to protect the elderly and recommending them to avoid meeting their young relatives and uh, obviously some people say that that's easy for introverted Swedes who rarely meet their old relatives anyway <laughs> uh, but I, I think that it definitely led to um, more um, social distancing like that protecting elderly care nursing homes for the elderly while even though that's an area where it came too late I think it ended up infections in the nursing homes at an early uh, period but but many attempts and, and even restrictions were, were done in that area. Uh, also, uh, healthcare generally, as you pointed out, uh, there was an attempt to rapidly scale up intensive care units and building an entirely new field hospital here in Stockholm, for example, to protect those who got the infection in at, uh, anyway. Um, but above all, trying to recommend everyone to avoid social interactions if they could. And according to mobility data, that happened. Uh, what about um, schools? Obviously, in the U.S., you know, what to do about schools was one of the more um, divisive, uh, politicized you know, arguments. Um, schools here in, in certain parts of the country um, stayed shut a lot. lot and it depends if it's a public school or a private school, what state you're in, what's the political makeup. Um, and and then and the closures and masks and even vaccine requirements in some places. Um, what did Sweden do on that front? In Sweden, it was seen as a priority, and this was a consensus opinion, I, I would say, across the political spectrum, to keep schools open. Because we didn't know what was going to happen with the virus, the disease, how long this was going to end. We only knew that if we shut down schools, we will ruin um, months, um, possibly a year of schooling, and that will be incredibly detrimental to kids for the long term. And not just economically, but health-wise, we know that schooling is an important in, uh, um, predictor of um, future health, uh, life expectancy, and things like that. So elementary schools were kept open all throughout. And this is an interesting uh, result when we now look at what happened all around the world. School children lost months or even a year of schooling, and it's been a disaster for education. I think the U.S. Um, Department of Education concludes that half of American students began 2023 a full year behind grade level in at least one subject. But in sharp contrast, Swedish school 
elementary schoolers suffered no learning losses during the pandemic. And I think that's pretty unique. And that's something that we're very happy about now. How generalizable do you think the Sweden, Swedish trends are when you look at some of the other factors that can influence uh, excess deaths and, and comorbidities and the like? One out of every three Americans is obese. Two-thirds are overweight. Only one out of every 10 Swedes is, over, is, is obese. Um, the comorbidities include things like uh, asthma and diabetes, which are overrepresented, particularly in uh, urban areas and in poor communities due to the exposure to air pollutants and the like. Uh, and obviously, there is more of that in the United States than there is in Sweden. Um, is there a risk in reading too far into what is interpretable data here with respect to excess deaths as other people in different parts of the world are planning for future pandemics? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And I uh, wouldn't want to explain to every other country how to deal with a pandemic, but I think it's important to look at the Swedish model and how it worked out um, and, and then try to adapt this to local circumstances. It's definitely a fact that there are fewer um, conditions like obesity in, in Sweden than in the United States, but not more than in uh, the Netherlands or in, uh, in Germany, I, I, in Belgium, I don't think. So, and I think this will keep researchers busy for years trying mm. to adjust all those numbers to, uh, to uh, other health conditions in a population. But what I think is important to point out that is also that perhaps a way to live with social distancing for a longer time is not to try to politicize it too much because in the end you just start breaking the rules if you think that this is just some sort of um, administrative um, elite trying to tell you how to lead your lives and 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 in Sweden, in many ways, social distancing could keep going for a longer time, precisely because it was never politicized. People just try to protect themselves and their loved ones. Uh, and that's an important lesson to everyone. Mm. Johan Norberg, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Fox News host Tucker Carlson could reportedly be in talks to interview Russian President Vladimir Putin. This is according to editor-in-chief of RT News, Margarita Simonian. Uh, she said during a talk show Sunday that Carlson is, quote, strongly requesting an interview with Vladimir Putin. It would be great if someone notifies the president about this. Now, during an episode of the Full Send podcast from this March, Tucker Carlson himself claimed that he was trying to interview Putin starting during the summer before the war in Ukraine began. Um, I'm not hiding anything, but I was definitely hiding my plan to go interview Putin just because it's an interview. So, no, so how no did that happen? Business. How, did, yeah. how do you know the NSA broke into your signal? Because well, they admitted it. Really? Oh, yeah. Like, can you tell us about that? Like, how did you find out? I got a call from somebody in Washington who's who would know, just trust me, who, uh, so I, I went up there for another reason, but this person said, you know, are you going to come to Washington anytime soon? This was a year and a half ago, and I was like, yeah, actually, I'm going to be up in a week. Meet me Sunday morning. So weird. Like, who does that? Just text me. You know what I mean? Just yeah. text me. No. So I go, and this person's like, and this is someone who would know. Um, are you planning a trip to go see Putin? This was the summer before the war started. And I was like, 
how would you know that? I haven't told anybody. I mean, anybody. Not my brother, not my wife, nobody. And just because, you know, it's one of a million things you're working on. And but that was one of them. I want to go interview. Why wouldn't I want to interview Putin? And here's some more from that interview. How would you know that? Because NSA pulled your text with this other person you were texting. How did you know that? And so I immediately, I was intimidated. I'm embarrassed to admit, but I was. I was completely freaked out by it. I called a U.S. senator who I know, not that well, but it seems like a trustworthy worthy person. And I told him the story. I said, I just want to tell you this. And then I went on TV on Monday and I'm like, this happened. And so they had, you know, in Congress asked NSA and NSA is like, yes, we did this, but for good reason. What would be a good reason to read my, you know, what? But the head of NSA, it's fine. It gets, because everyone's in on it. Republicans and Democrats are all in on it. And by it, I mean the assumption there's no privacy whatsoever, that they have a right to know everything you're saying and thinking. I love to hear that bipartisan criticism of the deep state and an advocacy for a right to privacy. Yes, uh, the NSA's <laughs> routine spying and surveillance of American citizens is loathsome. Um, who was it, James Clapper, who lied about it in front of Congress? Obvious that he lied and he was never held accountable for that. Um, so that, yeah, that's this is kind of a side matter, but yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, Tucker explained that the NSA was looking at his messages. Um, I'm sure the news that he's trying to interview Putin, if he ever does actually interview Putin, you know, will be greeted with, um, look at this Putin puppet, look at this, you know, anti-American, how dare he, misinformation, et cetera, propaganda from uh, the usual suspects. Uh, of course, there's, you know, a long, you don't, it's not an endorsement necessarily of the person to interview them. Hey, we can, now we would criticize, we'll, we'll critique the interview if we think it's yeah. um, too friendly as we recruit, uh, we critiqued his interview with, um, with, uh, with Tate, uh, sure. in particular is what I was thinking. Um, but it's not, it's not wrong to do that. Um, there's a, you know, a long history of, uh, of, of jur American journalists going to foreign countries to interview dictatorial type people. I remember when, uh, what the president of, Iran came to America, came to Columbia University, mm -hmm. and was interviewed um, by Lee Bollinger. Um, uh, he was asked about, you know, his stance on human rights and LGBT rights. He said there's no gay people in Iran. The campus oh, thought yeah, that was pretty that. funny. Uh, so it's uh, it's totally fine to do these interviews. It in fact is the work of journalism, and we can critique it based on how it goes, but. You're not some propagandist for considering the exercise. It's literally crazy that we, like, yeah. I'm like listening to you, like, why is this even a topic of yeah. conversation? Obviously, it's good to interview yeah. people. I'm sorry, I'm, the argument is what? Because Putin is so bad, you shouldn't do investigative journalism? So I'm sure the speculation here, given all the timing, is, is that, and we don't know, did his desire to do this interview, was it known to Fox, and did it play any role in the, is this an example of the kind of thing they did not want? We don't know. I, I think I saw some of that speculation. I, I'm even struggling with why would Fox object to an interview? Well, I don't know, and maybe he's they did. Putin. Right. <laughs> right. He, he, he's the leader of an entire country. Right. A major world power. What 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 right. what argument against the journalistic merit of doing that interview could you possibly make? I have no idea. Now I I, I completely agree that there is a history of Tucker Carlson doing softball interviews that amount to not interviews but kind of propaganda campaigns in favor of X Y or Z person. I think the Andrew Tate example is instructive. I think the most recent Donald Trump interview 
was a journalistically a journalism void. Um, you learn nothing new. He let Donald Trump talk for 20 minutes about the Panama Canal, which was like vaguely entertaining. Well, no, but not really we learned that Donald Trump actually thinks that Jeffrey Epstein did kill himself. Well, even that How was can you weird. Say that's not no, even that was weird because it felt like Tucker Carlson, and this is my subjective view, obviously, but he asked Donald Trump so many times if he thought that he was going to get killed yeah. that it almost felt like a weird sort of baiting. Like, I remember back in 2008 when Hillary Clinton was making the argument that she didn't want to drop out of the primary prematurely because uh, I forget which other candidate was killed. In, uh, in 2008? Yeah. Were you not? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that she, you know, so and so had been killed before, and so she should stay in just in case, like Barack Obama gets was murdered. Oh. And there was obviously oh, the so much. Oh, she was trying to inject. Yes, the argument was there? she was exactly trying yeah. to put a mark on his back as the first yeah. black potential president, and he was getting he did get a disproportionate amount of um, mm -hmm. uh, threats against him during his mm -hmm. time in office. So. That was what was in my mind, as, as Tucker Carlson kept saying again and again, but aren't you afraid they're going to kill you? Like, are they going to kill you? Are they going to kill you? Like, Epstein, I was like, slow your roll, dude. I don't know, you just wanted to back off. It would be good content if uh, Trump said, yeah, they're trying to kill me, Tucker. They're animals. They're Wait, but, savages. But, but, he didn't, he no didn't say that. Like, it seemed, and no. this is all subjective, and I'm just reading between the lines, but it seemed like Donald Trump was also made uncomfortable by that line of questioning and kept skirting the question, which is why mm -hmm. um, Tucker Carlson kept asking him. So it was, again, entertaining, but in terms of uh, actual uh, journalism content, very low. So critiquing him after a Putin interview, if, in fact, he does not ask him incisive right. Questions, I think it's completely fair. Saying that the idea of interviewing a head of state is somehow what seditious is in, insane, weird, cold war-y sort, of, um, uh, sort of a perspective. Now, in a new episode of his show, Carlson asked the prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, what he would do about the war in Ukraine if he were in charge of NATO. Let's watch. If you were in charge of NATO, if you were, say, Joe Biden, uh, what would your next move be in the war in Ukraine? What would you do? Peace immediately. Call back Trump. That's 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 the only way out. Call back Trump. Call back Trump. Because you know, you can criticize him for many reasons. I understand all the all the discussion, but you know, the best foreign policy of the recent several decades belonged to him. He did not initiate any new war. Yes. He treated nicely the, 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 the North Koreans and, and Russia, even the Chinese, you know. He, he, he delivered a policy which was the best one for Middle, for Middle East, Abraham Accords. Yes. So, so that was a very good foreign policy. He, you know, he's criticized that he's not, you know, he's not educated enough to understand the word. But this is not the case. Facts count. And his foreign policy was the best one for the world in the last several decades I have seen. And if he would have been the president at the moment of the Russian invasion started, no, it would, it, it would be not possible to do that by the Russians. So Trump is the man who can save the Western world and the, probably the human beings in, uh, in the globe as well. That's, that's my personal conviction. Yeah, in response to this clip, journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted, I realize, of course, that both of the figures involved here are Hitlers, but I really encourage everyone to watch the first 15 minutes where the war in Ukraine is discussed. Whatever you think of Orban, uh, Hitler, in parentheses, he understands Russia and Ukraine for obvious reasons. This comes as Ukrainian drones struck targets in at least six regions within Russia yesterday, including an airfield 
where they destroyed military transport planes. Now, according to Reuters, the Russian foreign ministry said these attacks would not go unpunished and that the drones could not have reached so far into Russia, quote, without Western help, according to Reuters. Very so concerning. That's exactly the kind of escalation that reasonable, calm, level-headed minds Mm -hmm. have been trying to avoid. Including, apparently, Viktor Orban's. <laughs> yes. And, in fact, I, there, was a, there was a piece in The New Yorker yesterday uh, called The Case for Negotiating with Russia that has a kind of regional expert who has been making this argument since before the war started, that knowing that we weren't going to allow Ukraine into NATO, why not make public what was happening behind mm -hmm. closed doors? Why not take all of these off-ramps that have presented themselves since the beginning of the invasion? And I do, um, I am heartened that there are mainstream liberal places like through. The New Yorker who are making yes. these arguments. You know, whether or not you like Viktor Orban and think he's Hitler, sure. you don't have to listen to him to get the same kind of advice. It's all over the place. The question is, why is the Biden administration so stuck on this on when it's a political loser and yeah. a substantively bad idea? And defending, right, stuck on defending every inch of Ukrainian territory. Yeah. That's their perspective. Again, no one is saying Russia should be allowed to take over the whole country and that it should just become part of Russia. This is a dispute over certain territories that have significant Russian-speaking people and might want some DeSantis. kind of independence. A territorial dispute? <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's true, right? Yeah, it, it, it is true. And people want, right, nobody wants Russia to just steam over uh, Ukraine and kill everyone there. And that is so, uh, so avoiding that and, and all these thousands of thousands of people who have died in the course of this invasion, eventually we're going to have diplomacy. We can have it now, we could have had it yesterday, we can have it sometime in the future, but we're gonna have it. And we're gonna, there's gonna be an exchange of, they're gonna get something they want in exchange for, again, the entire country not being destroyed, yeah. which is worth avoiding. Again, if you, think, if you think it's so important to have World War III over this, again, over this inches of the country, then, I mean, more than inches on a map, more, obviously it's a significant amount of territory. But I mean, I, I'm not someone who thinks people have no right to self-determination or like a, a new nation or a new land can't change hands for nominally who's their sovereign. Also, it doesn't make any sense. Also, we don't view that. We don't believe that, right? We believe in self-determination. Europe, the maps of Europe have been redrawn 8,000 times the, in just the last 100 years. the question of self-determination is a complicated one because part of what preceded this whole conflict and preceded the Civil War was different world powers trying to exert their influence on Ukraine, with the West and IMF offering one kind of an economic deal that comes with all of the austerity and the hardship on working class and poor people in a country that the IMF tends to impose, versus a, a Russian package that I'm sure had its own pros and cons. There was a question, this was the whole deal with the Minsk Accords, right? There was a question of whether or not they should be allowed to vote to see which direction the country should go in, and the U.S. intervention in those elections with Victoria Newland and all of that that we've gone over right. so many times was to guarantee that the outcome was that there was going to be a leader that wanted to go the Western route. Um, and so that to, to talk about self-determination and not realize that there have been U.S. efforts at undermining the self-determination of the people of Ukraine, including those in the Western region, uh, sorry, and the Eastern regions that are Russian-speaking and at least prior to this conf conflict, right. if allowed to vote, likely would have chosen to have closer relationship with Russia is really starting the story right. at a point which dictates an outcome that is not really uh, honest. If the bulk of the country wants to be closer to a Western sphere, great, wonderful. But th that, and then some other part of the country doesn't. There's no, we, we shouldn't, 
it, it's like uh, like Wilsonian or something to force people well, was, who have that different was, interests the, the into the same. The Mystic Court was going to accommodate some of yeah, that, give a certain a, amount of like uh, voting seats of the western of the Eastern Bloc, yeah. and, and and the West didn't want that. They didn't want to have that entrenched like pro-Russian influence. They wanted to have the whole thing. Yeah. Now here we are. So here we are. More rising right after this. The FBI has collected 21.7 million DNA profiles, or about 7% of the U.S. population, according to bureau data reviewed by The Intercept. The agency allegedly aims to nearly double its current $56.7 million budget for dealing with its DNA catalog with an additional $53.1 million. Now, that's according to its budget request for fiscal year 2024. The appeal for an increase says the requested resources will allow the FBI to process the rapidly increasing number of DNA samples collected by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Journalist at The Intercept, Ken Klippenstein, is here with us to discuss. Welcome back, Ken. Hey, guys, good to be with you again. All right, so there are some people out there in the zeitgeist I saw in responding to this story, I think Matt Iglesias is one of them, that said, look, it's good to catch more criminals. If your DNA isn't at the scene, why should you be concerned? Uh, any comparisons to this being a policy that's like what they do in China are just kind of fear-mongering without basis. So why should people be concerned about a rapidly expanding DNA archive being held by the FBI? Well, I interviewed uh, some uh, DNA experts in this story, and what they pointed to was the fact that um, just because DNA is present in a crime scene doesn't necessarily mean uh, that someone was uh, implicated in it or even involved in any sort of way. And the second uh, part of this is, uh, you know, we can still collect DNA and use that in criminal prosecutions. The question is, how far do we want to go with this? The present system that we have, any felon, um, is put into the um, uh, DNA database. In addition to that, anyone sentenced in relation to a felony. So they use this, uh, prosecutors will plead down charges to misdemeanors in many cases, and in, ex in exchange for um, whatever it is they agree to, including uh, their DNA sample being put into this um, database. And it's not just um, criminals. They are collecting millions of samples at the um, southern border, a policy that um, actually harkens back to the by, uh, the Obama administration. There's a very bipartisan basis for all of this, um, and which uh, was you know really um, put into full force under the Trump administration, and which the Biden administration has not reversed. So the question, um, you know, as I uh, quote in the story, a uh, Harvard um, genetics ethicist says, "Do we want to are we do we want to move in the direction?" Um, in which we're going, which is having a full, comprehensive um, DNA database. Um, and that's not really a debate, I think, that the public has, has had. I remember uh, when the suspect was apprehended in with the University of Idaho mm -hmm. uh, murders, it was, DNA, it was DNA evidence, and not because he himself had ever done a 23andMe or something like that, but some family member had, and then they you know, can plausibly verify with what, whatever it is, 99% accuracy that it's that that's his DNA, that kind of thing. You know, are we in a situation where, despite this being concerning from a you know from a civil liberties standpoint, there's ultimately nothing that can be done over time to prevent the government from just kind of collecting this information by default? Well, um, there you know these are policy choices that are made. Uh, there is in 2017 the DNA. Um, I think it was called uh, Fingerprinting Act that had overwhelming bipartisan support that has really thrown the doors open to all of this. And in the case of um, commercial enterprises that are gathering these things, 
there are still serious limits on the FBI collecting from that on a sort of bulk basis, and they can certainly strengthen that um, with with future le- legislation. That 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 remains a sort of barrier. Um, a lot of the the twenty one million samples of the DNA of DNA that the FBI has collected has not been under that basis. It's been under other um, uh, means of collection. So that's things could actually get significantly worse in that respect. And that's sort of uh, the mm. debate that I'm trying to trigger with this story is where do we want the guardrails to be and how far do we want to go? Because, um, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, critics of these things. There, there's this kind of false choice between, oh, people are saying you don't want to use DNA. No, I'm not saying that. We can use DNA. The question is, on what sort of targeted basis, what kind of privacy protections are people who have not opted into these programs, family members, things like that have been. And those are things we can create policies around. Yeah, that's interesting. I know that I have been very hesitant, despite some curiosity about doing a 23andMe, because it just feels instinctively um, right. too too much of a personal exposure to make your mm-hmm. DNA information available broadly. And I don't have a lot of confidence, for exactly the reasons you're describing, that that information wouldn't be shared with those who might have a, an interest against my own. Um, and it also seems to me, I, the, 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 the fingerprinting example that you brought up, Um, is interesting because it does seem to me that unlike a fingerprint, which can basically tell folks where you've been, uh, the DNA information gives a bigger insight into potentially aspects about about your genetic uh, predispositions. Um, There has been uh, ethical discourse about whether or not there can be discrimination from insurance providers or employers on the basis of health information that could be potentially gleaned from genetic analysis as these things get increasingly sophisticated. How much of that sort of thing was brought up by the ethicist uh, that you spoke to as we consider whether or not not from a policy perspective, we want to encourage the FBI uh, to have access to this sort of information. Yeah, those were exactly our sorts of concerns. And, you know, the experts I interviewed thought that the um, comparisons to uh, communist China were warranted, um, not because we're, you know, in exactly the same position by any means, but that they embody a certain direction in which society can go, in which we need to debate and decide, you know, do we want to go in this in this uh, direction in which the state gathers everything? And is able to dole out uh, whether it's a social credit system, or um, as you're saying, uh, genetic predispositions, and, and, and factor that into um, you know healthcare policy and things like that. That's obviously an extreme, but that is one direction in which society can go. Um, another one uh, is you know still using DNA, but on a highly targeted basis um, with protections in place. And I want to stress um, concerns about the government's ability to protect this information, even if they're not intentionally you know sharing it with other parties. Um, I think is warranted because if you look at their uh, inspector general, uh, their watchdog reports, it is a you know matter of course that they are finding um, insufficient uh, uh, privacy protections put in place for all sorts of uh, information that they collect about Americans, not just DNA. So this isn't a you know abstract concern. Again and again, the government is found to not um, put uh, safeguards in place to pre- prevent things from you know everything from hacks to to you know poorly designed software that that people can access. So I think that these are very uh, salient concerns and not ones that, you know, should be taking place only in in the aegis of academia, which unfortunately is is the case now. Where do you think the public is on this? People are, uh, you know, rightly uh, concerned about their privacy, their Internet privacy. You have some 
a kind of uh, you know, philosophical concerns about government having access to this. But then when there's a crisis or an emergency or a crime, um, as you know, as we saw going back to the Patriot Act era and everything that's happened since, um, a lot of concerns for civil liberties go right out the door and are you know well supported by majorities of, of people. So how wh where do you think the people are on this kind of thing, and how do we sell them on being a little bit more wary of you know when the government says it really needs this information, it's such a good idea. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, one big factor here is the post 9-11 era, which really threw the doors open to, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, things that would raise concerns about civil liberties. I would just point to what the ACLU was saying when they first unrolled the um, FBI's DNA database called CODIS. Um, and, and they were saying initially it was only for uh, violent felons. And I think it was uh, 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 pe people charged with sexual crimes. And they said, you know, it's just going to be the worst of the worst. Don't worry about it. And the ACLU said, this is a slippery slope, guys. They're going to start with that, and it's going to expand. And that's exactly what's happened, to the point that they're now, um, in many cases, able to collect on people that haven't even been charged with a crime. In over half of U.S. states, they've made it so that as soon as you're arrested for something, if it's a felony offense, um, and you know, completely irrespective of what uh, you know, a jury or peers has decided, that they can collect that DNA. So the, the ACLU has been right in the past, and I imagine that um, these problems will continue to metastasize as the technology becomes more sophisticated. I was surprised to learn in the course of this reporting that they, um, at the very frontier of what our science can do now, they can gather DNA from air that you exhale. So they're and they're doing this now. There's a there's a there's a Pentagon contract now. Oh my God! Um, we got a mask they're initially... up. <laughs> Come on, Robbie. I'm just gonna stop exhaling. We Here got I go. a mask up. <laughs> Robbie just is going to stop breathing over here instead. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to. I don't mean to, to joke about it. But that is that is incredible, and it makes you think that maybe there's just no stopping it as technolo technology develops. That, you know, they're not going to need. They just don't need your consent. And given that there's so much um, uh, a lack of transparency in these deep, kind of deep state organizations, anyway, I do wonder if we're all talking past each other and they're going to do what they're going to do. But thank you so much for joining us, Ken. This is a fascinating report. I appreciate it, guys. Good seeing you. Newly unearthed footage shows young Vivek Ramaswamy, and this footage has gone viral. Let's watch some of it. Good. Let's get to my question here. Go ahead. Reverend Sharpton, hello. I'm Vivek, and I want to ask you, uh, last week on the show we had Senator Kerry, and this week, and, and the week before we had Senator Edwards, and my question for you is, of all the Democratic candidates out there, why should I vote for the one with the least political experience? Well, you shouldn't, because I have the most political experience. <laughs> I got involved in the political uh, movement when I was 12 years old. And I've been involved in social policy for the last 30 years. So don't confuse people that have a job with political experience. <laughs> Uh, whoever the head of, uh, uh, of, of some local bureaucracy has a job in Cambridge. That doesn't mean that they have political experience, and it doesn't mean they have the experience to uh, run the United States uh, government. So I think that we confuse title holders with political experience, as we have, uh, have seen with the present occupant in the White House. George Bush was a governor and clearly has shown he doesn't have political experience. <laughs> 
Now, Ramaswamy wasn't the only budding political star to take to hardball in their youth during that 2003 little uh, shindig at Harvard, I believe. You were maybe back there somewhere, Brianna. Uh, she's shaking her head. I was she... elsewhere being normal. <laughs> <laughs> but Vivek was not alone. Let's check out who else was there. Congressman, why are you the only presidential candidate not attending tomorrow's youth-oriented Rock the Vote Forum? And do you think young people's votes matter in your campaign? They matter a lot. That's why I'm here tonight. And uh, I've got to be in Iowa. I had a preset uh, meeting that I've got to go to. I've got to win Iowa. I'm going to win Iowa, so I'm going to be in Iowa tomorrow night. But I talk to young people everywhere I am. I've got lots of young people on my campaign. And maybe I ought to say this now. When I was in college, no. Jack Kennedy was president. And I was moved when he said to young people like me, get involved in politics, give part of your life to politics. So I just want to say to all of you here, get involved in public life, <laughs> give back to your country, don't just take from it. And get involved in this campaign. If it's not for me, get behind somebody and get out there and work and make this country a better place. You can do this. All right. Now it's the audience of tryhards. <laughs> I mean, it, that's kind of the gist of the uh, commentary that's been going on since people realized that these two obviously very ambitious political stars on different sides of the aisle both happened to attend the same kind of event. You had both. Pete Buttigieg was also 38 years old when he was running for president uh, back in 2000. And I think the reaction that many folks in their respective parties had to these figures is driven by a similar feeling of kind of, had they always wanted to be president for kind of personal careerist reasons? I, I'm loath to defend Pete Buttigieg, but he does at least seem to have done a lot of public service. He was a mayor. He was in the armed forces. He did do some stuff in a way that Vivek Ramaswamy's political life before this moment is a real black hole. Uh, this is something that he was called out on uh, on The Breakfast Club in an interview with, with Teslin Figueroa, who has been a guest on this show in the past, a political commentator I really enjoy, where she was pressing him on the question of his kind of po po political origin of why he's doing this, why he's running for president, you know, should he do public service? What is the contrast between mm -hmm. someone like him and someone like Al Sharpton, who has not been in politics and who could describe himself as an outsider to politics, but was genuinely shown a commitment to making the world better uh, through the choices that he's made in his life uh, from the civil rights movement onward? So, yeah, what did you, what did you make of the coincidence here? I think it is uh, interesting. I mean, there were a lot of jokes about, oh, the simulation is glitching or something like that. Uh, I think it's interesting to compare, actually, Buttigieg and Vivek um, in terms of how they became a big thing. I mean, Vivek's been a big thing for the last couple days since his debate performance. Don't know if this is going to, you know, this wave could crest. We'll see. Um, they're both, what's similar about them in terms of their campaigns was the media strategy, is talking to it, Pete did a lot of this, too, talking to, um, you know, not just, just cable news appearances, although they're both willing to do those to mm -hmm. the end of time, but also a lot, of the, a lot of podcasts, a lot of independent media, different people that has catapult, that catapulted them to a lot more um, national notoriety and credibility uh, versus, you know, more traditional candidates who are more traditional in their, in their thinking about when they're going you know, to speak. DeSantis is very careful and very cautious about doing um, national media, you know, uh, a, a someone like 
you know, Amy Klobuchar or Kristen Gillibrand or Castro or whoever else was in the in the 2020 contest was as well. And it goes to show you that there is you can do yourself a lot of credit. I, obviously, you can damage yourself. You can hurt yourself if you really screwed up. And yeah. people will, some people will not like you, but other people will want to hear more from you. And you'll get invited to go more places. And, uh, you know, we're we're beyond um, you know, the media very broadly defined has a lot of power to. Um, anoint next big things, but I, I, by media, I mean, again, in the broadest possible sense, the entire YouTube ecosystem as well. I'm not just the narrow pundit class on, uh, yeah, well, on I, CNN, I, Fox, or You're MSNBC. right about his strategy. In fact, he's done a couple of high-profile interviews in the mainstream media and corporate media. He was on Fox News talking to Hannity recently in a clip that also went viral. Because again, just like he did with Dana Bash, uh, and as we covered earlier this week, he was asked in an interview about previous statements uh, that he's made and seem in his response was, well, I didn't say it, I was misquoted. Hannity had the quote on hand. Uh, I think we have this clip. Let's go ahead and take a look at how that went down at Fox. Go over some of the issues, though. You know, you said aid to Israel, our number one ally, only democracy in the region should end in 2028 uh, and that they should be integrated That's with false. their neighbors. I have an exact quote. You want me to read it? That's actually... Yeah, you, I can tell you the exact quote. What I said is it would be a mark of success if we ever got to a point in our relationship with Israel, if Israel never needed the United States' aid. And, Sean, you know how politics is played. A lot of the other professional politicians who have been threatened by my rise have used that statement to say that I would cut off aid to Israel. That's not correct. I've been... So what's interesting there is I obviously don't agree with Hannity. Uh, I don't right. share his politics. I think that Vivek is right to want to, at very least, um, put strong conditions on aid to Israel. Uh, or, or should or be it, equal it, to the other. It, it, that's what he it, suggested. It doesn't need to but, be but, special but that's, and above my, and beyond. My issue here is that he did the, say that. The issue here is that my substantive agreement or disagreement with Hannity versus Vivek. It's that when pressed on his beliefs, he doubles down and he equivocates. So in, in other contexts, like on the debate stage, he said, yes, I'm willing to stand here and say that, uh, you know, cl the climate change uh, hoax isn't, or whatever he said, climate change policy is a hoax. He's willing to stand there and say, and pound his chest and say, I'm the only one who's unbought and unbothered and, and willing to say X, Y, and Z. But this should be an easy one. Yes, I said what I said. We should not condition aid to Israel. But whether he's in a liberal context or in a conservative context, it seems when he's asked some tough questions, about the exact words that he said in other, in other points, he, he claims that people are misquoting him, despite ample evidence that he's not being misquoted. People are now very prepared when they engage in, with interviews with him because they know he's just going to say that he didn't say what he said. Mm -hmm. And this gets back to the initial point. Who is he? Why is it that we can find instances of him saying different things a week ago, five months ago, than he's saying now? And is there a legitimate concern that he is this bright-eyed young guy that we saw at the Kennedy School who is creating himself in the image that he thinks the public wants to see as well, opposed to something that's authentic and we can rely on as I don't voters. begrudge him for changing his views since 2004. Well, but we don't know what right his views in he, 2004 were. Well, I'm right. He's in a Democratic uh, um, gathering, although he, I think he no, said he, he voted for the Libertarian he, Party he, in 2004. You know, it's just attending—I don't think that it's fair to say that someone's a Democrat just because they went to mm -hmm. see a Democratic political mm -hmm. candidate come to cam campus. Well, I but the thrust of the question was, was not—I don't know. The question didn't seem to come from a conservative— Point of it came from you're the no, but I, I'm certainly not judging him based okay. on anyway, his childhood yeah. po politics. You're you're right that he should he should be more careful and he should just stick to his 
guns when his guns are right, as they are on the question of Ukraine funding, foreign aid to Israel and other countries. Actually, his viewpoint is is well um, respected and regarded among actual conservatives, actual Republican voters, agree with a less muscular foreign policy, a less interventionist yeah. foreign policy. They don't love foreign aid. They think that money should be spent here, if at all. So he can stick to his guns and just say, yes, we're not, we're not responsible for, you know, defending the state of Israel. They, they shouldn't—it doesn't need to, to be uh, more exorbitant what we're giving them, to giving to anybody else. And the American people have, I think, a different set of priorities than the priorities of neoconservatives and interventionists yeah, everywhere. Absolutely. And he should stick to that, and that would be my he, advice. He should. Instead of trying to be all things to all people, to all sides of the He should, but Bobby, let's, let's talk about the thing. We all agree that we agree with Vivek on this particular policy, but he is backtracking. He backtracks when pressed like this. And there was another yeah, was moment in this interview. Yeah, he was backtracking to Sean there, and he just should have stuck so, to his so guns. So what is going on? There was another, oh. another clip um, He's uh, trying to be all that things we don't, to all people. That, that's, that's the critique that I'm making here. Not, it's not of the yeah. policy, it's of his choice. Well, I agree. So there's another, there's another clip from this interview. Uh, we don't have time to play, but we should, people should go and find it and watch in their own time, where he similarly asked about his stance on Taiwan, China, and the semiconductor issue. We ended up early on having a disagreement on the show about what he really believed here, because we both read his remarks differently. You, I, I said, well, he said it's strategic, he, he advances strategic clarity. And you were saying, no, he's anti-interventionist in China. He's saying that we're not going to fight a war. And I said, well, no. When we, when we re read the statements, he says that he will, he has, he has said full-throatedly that we will defend Taiwan against China, potentially World War III, till the end, to, for the next four years until we get semiconductor independence, which foreign policy experts say is an incredible escalation and puts America at risk for those next four years. And when he was pressed about that on Sean Hannity, now Sean Hannity disagrees with that. He thinks that we should be always willing to go to China without any caveats or whatsoever. Well, always willing to go to war with China. Sorry, go to war with China, yes, without any caveats whatsoever, which I disagree with. Yeah. Again, Vivek seemed to cave to pressure and be equivocating about what his stance actually was. And there's some irony in him saying, well, I want strategic clarity about this particular issue, when he's done nothing but create ambiguity about where he actually stands here. And, you know, it has not been a good media few days. There was another story about how, despite saying, I can speak freely about climate change because I'm not bought and paid for, there was that big moment at the debate. He, in fact, apparently uh, runs an investment firm dedicating to drilling fossil fuels and benefits personally from fossil fuel development. I mean, all of this stuff is coming out now that is not just stuff I don't like about him, but kind of hypocrisy or half-truths that he's told about himself. And so I'm, I'm really curious to see how that evolve, people's perception of him evolves um, as he has more of a record that he has to actually defend and not run away from in these interviews. Yeah, I don't know how that stuff's going to affect him, but he shouldn't, um, if I were advising him, I would warn him about uh, seeming to waver or pivot from the anti-interventionist lane, which is an under, despite how popular it is among Republicans, is an underrepresented place to be compared to the other candidates. Don't be afraid to tell, to tell, uh, you know, senior, the senior pundit class in the Republican Party that no, you are breaking from what they and their previous candidates have advised for years because that is what actually the Republican Party voters. Yeah, want. And, and in his defense, I mean, not his defense, but like the reality is, this is why it's important to have like. I mean, look it, at Tucker. Tucker's the most influential right wing commentator, and he has totally different foreign policy views than Hannity. Yeah, this is why it's so important to have a structural analysis of why people behave the way they behave. Liking someone, feeling like they gave a good soundbite is not enough. The reason why there's such consensus around 
military interventionism, the blob, et cetera, United States of America on both sides of the aisle is because it's an incredibly powerful institutional base. And anybody, no, no matter what's in your heart of hearts, is going to feel pressure to conform to the mainstream analysis there, the mainstream belief there. And so Vivek Ramaswamy, if you want to be able to stand up against the blob, you have to have a movement behind you. You have to have a, a, a specific plan about how you're going to go yeah. about doing things like defunding the FBI and cutting the military budget. Elizabeth Warren happily votes along with increases to the military budget, despite whatever lip service you give about wanting green energy right. and all those kinds of things. AOC that, does. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That's the most how, principled anti-war people exactly. end up, uh, I mean, look at Barack Obama, it, ran explicitly on an anti-war platform and then committed more troops to Afghanistan. Exactly. So what? What? how are you going to be different? It's not enough just yeah. to say things on a campaign trail. And RFK Jr. has been really bringing attention to this. He argues that his family members were killed in part because of their willingness to stand up against the deep state. And yeah. I think there's a lot of credibility to that sort of argument. So what are you, what one, can you even believe that you are even sincerely invested in this given the lack of record you have? Um, and two, uh, even if you do sincerely believe in it, what is your plan to get farther here than any other person has managed to do in the history of American politics? All right, more rising for you right after this. Resistance Liberals' favorite comedians are teaming up to start a podcast. Uh, some people have objected to this conflagration of liberal greats, but it seems to be for a good cause. Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Seth Meyers, and John Oliver are teaming with Spotify for a podcast called Strike Force 5, a limited series podcast discussing the WGA writer strike. And proceeds will go to staffers on each of their shows. Let's take a listen to the promo. One more time, Jimmy. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jimmy Fallon. I'm oh, Stephen Colbert. I'm Jimmy Kimmel. I thought when you said Jimmy, you meant me, Jimmy, but you meant Jimmy, Jimmy. I always mean you. But when you I say always Seth, Seth Myers, who do you mean? I mean John Oliver. It's the five of us together for uh, maybe an hour a, a day. Strike Force 5 is the name of our podcast. Subscribe to it now. Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. But Spotify, you I'm not sure they've mastered the art form yet. <laughs> I was it is an John art Oliver. form. John, John Oliver had me there. At the end Sorry to blast bit. you with the F word. This is a family show, <laughs> producers. Um, so, yeah, I, I do agree with you that many people think that they can do a uh, successful podcast just because they're famous. It didn't work out for Barack Obama and Bruce mm -hmm. Springsteen. I don't think everybody has the juice. I will say comedians do tend to fare better in this field than other folks. Because they can um, uh, word word talk for long, <laughs> get the get the. They can the riff words. on each other. They can have chemistry and the like. I do think it's <sighs> interesting that you keep getting these. It's not that there's a problem with it, but these podcasts that are like a bunch of white guys that they have duplicate names, like this is a crit criticism of, of Pod Save America, that they're all Johns and you can't tell them mm -hmm. apart. Here, there's multiple Jimmys in these podcasts. Um, but, you know, I, I did. people were melting down over this. People were very upset. Were they? Yes. There I were, missed this one. There were very many Usually people. when people are melting down, it very quickly permeates my awareness, but I didn't see much. People much on the this. left were criticizing it for being libish and cringe. People on the right were criticizing it for being Those are some pretty libish cringe, and cringe. People. I mean, John Oliver is funny. Um, I don't He's funny and incisive and has good politics. And probably his politics are you mad because he came after you that time? Side. 
I don't hold a grudge. It's fine. People come <laughs> after me daily. They come at me. You made prime time. That was over. Uh, that was over an Alliamy clip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. and Alliamy having a little. It bit was of unfortunate because it made it look like I was some like arch right wing person on policing issues, which I am. If you put me next to Alliamy, who's the furthest left person on I criminal justice a, stuff on the history stuff? of the world, no, it was not. It was about. It was about police stuff. Okay. Um, in any in in any normal spectrum of people, I am I am not like an extremist for militarizing the police or something. Most certainly you aren't. I think the real tragedy of that clip going viral is that uh, our background was out that day mm. and it looked really oh, yeah, raggedy. I was thrilled on, about that. Looked like we were uh, yeah just a uh, low rent organization. Yeah, so I, I do think that John Oliver has good commentary. I know that people really dislike Jimmy um, Fallon. They don't like that super positive, uh, why is he always laughing, why is he always singing? Mm -hmm. I see that critique of him. I like laughing and singing. I, you know, I like a little bit of a cabaret situation on my late night shows. It doesn't bother me. It's innocent. I think we need some more of that in this I'm not world. a consumer of late night. I, I watch John Oliver sometimes because mm -hmm. he is funny. I'm not a consumer of late night stuff at all. Like if a, there's a good clip, it'll make it to my, uh, like I'll watch it if it's online, um, but I, I'm, I just like, I don't watch a lot of late night. I don't find it that funny. Well, this is part and parcel of this bigger argument that's been going on where conservatives have been saying that liberals aren't funny anymore because they're too woke. And that is a real swing yeah. and a change from what used to be considered to be common knowledge back in, let's say, the Bush era, where it was the height of Jon Stewart. And the joke was that conservative attempts to compete just didn't rate very highly. And we well, have a lot of conservative humor is cringe. I think the idea, though, is that the liberal perspective, the, the elite liberal perspective, has become so so mainstream that it just doesn't it's not transgressive the kind of humor they tell like because the kind of humor they do is like well in keeping with CDC guidelines or something um, I'm specifically thinking of uh, you know John Stewart uh, uh, broke through during that uh, that Colbert appearance where like he seemed so alarmed that yeah, but Stewart those, was giving some those are two liberals yeah, having well, that conversation. is more of an outside-the-box thing. Sure, but he is in no way conservative. So well, no. those are two left-leaning people on both sides of that. So it's an interesting argument to make. In fact, we have a clip here of Democratic presidential candidate RFK Jr. making a similar kind of critique of left humor. Let's take a watch. It was weird what happened to the, you know, I'm sure you noticed this, that all these comedians stopped being funny at the beginning of COVID. All the people who we laughed at for 20 years and none of them were funny anymore because they weren't allowed to laugh at what was happening. It was really happening. They all had to go along with the narrative. It was shocking. You were the first guy who was being funny about it. You know, the humor is such an important <laughs> part of, of, um, of change and criticism and political dissent. As for Jimmy Kimmel and, and Colbert and, you know, all of those guys, they just, they went dead. What happened? Fauci said that if hospitals get any more overcrowded, they're going to have to make some very tough choices about who gets an ICU bed. I, that choice doesn't seem so tough to me. Vaccinated person having a heart attack? Yes, come right on in. We'll take care of you. Unvaccinated guy who gobbled horse goo? Rest in peace, Wheezy. I feel like they let down comedy. Um, now, I, I, I know Jimmy Kimmel. He was a sweetheart of a guy. I always thought he was a nice guy. He was nice to me. And so it was a heartbreak to see that. Yeah, so, look, I think there's a... I think there's a lot of truth, honestly, to that observation. I would, that's what I was getting at before we played um, that clip. I, you know, obviously, RFK Jr. and Jimmy Dore are people who substantively disagree with what um, Jimmy Kimmel's of the world had to say about COVID. So maybe they don't find it funny because they don't agree with it. I and 
I don't really agree with. You know, I'm more in their camp on those things as well. So, uh, but I, I think I can. I think I can usually appreciate humor when I don't agree with. The, I like again. I think John Oliver is quite funny, even though I really don't agree with him, and he's made fun of me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't, there's this formulation about punching up versus punching down, which oh, people have used. I, I'm sure just you do. loathe entirely. Um, I'm sure you do, but I do think that, like most things, top down is the way to have an analysis, not left, right. And there are plenty of conservative politicians, uh, sorry, comedians that I think are perfectly funny, but I don't think making a joke at the expense of someone who has a physical disability or mental, like, I don't, I personally don't think it's funny. I think that humor re requires an edginess. And if you are beating up on somebody who always gets beaten up on by everyone all the time, there's nothing subversive or edgy about it. You know what I mean? If it's like, okay, I'm making a joke about, let's say, kicking a baby or something, there's something subversive about that because we have a cultural desire to like protect babies. So surprised but, to see you joking about kicking but babies. Anti-family anti Brianna over yeah, here. Yeah, you know, that's me. But I, I, that that is not, I think, the correct way to look at the up-down thing. I think that there, there are, it's like very common to say, you know, I don't like fat people. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's like a, that's a very commonly internalized belief against and uh, people who even know that they shouldn't say it out loud. So making a bunch of jokes about, like, LOL, she's fat. Like it's just not funny. There's nothing edgy about it. Like I mean, everyone it says stuff funny. like that. But then you have to make it funny. Right. And I think that that is the formula. I mean, things like South Park and Family Guy find ways to make it funny, those kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, because they're good at humor. Yeah. I would also say those are left-leading human beings. Um, well, they do a lot of they do a lot shows. of anti-PC. I don't know. Yeah, but they're on the left. Yeah, that's that. So that this is what's so weird about the criticism. Like the left isn't funny anymore. Now, if the argument is that COVID isn't funny anymore. I will agree no, that there was some. The South Park guys are left. I don't think that's true. You think they're you think they're Republicans? I, I, I think they're like independent libertarians, but. I don't know that they're Republicans, I mean, but they're not. I don't think they're left. They're Canadian. Okay. All right. The the, the if the argument is that um, so I just googled a list of the top comedy tours. They all seem to be left leaning people mm -hmm. or majority, uh, et cetera. I think that's fine. If the critique is that COVID made things stop being funny, I think that I agree that there was a seriousness around COVID that made people not want to make any jokes about it. Um, Perhaps understandably, when you had you know a million people dying, uh, more people dying, uh, obviously before we had vaccines, and a sense of fear about how far this thing could spread. But I do want to agree with him on one point, which is mm -hmm. that horrible routine between the Cuomo brothers. Do you remember this? So everyone remembers the scandal of um, what it meant to have Governor Andrew Cuomo being interviewed by his uh, brother and all of that. But then there was this uh, kind of failed comedy routine with a giant. Uh, swab. Yeah, that was not funny. <laughs> but I think was when when that kind of thing sort of uh, jumped the shark. Mm. So I will agree. I will agree with that that narrow criticism of COVID humor. Mm. Uh, I, I looked it up. They, apparently, the South Park guys they do identify um, somewhat as libertarians. Interesting. Yeah, I'm doesn't, a libertarian socialist, but that doesn't really mean a lot okay. about my. We're different spectrums of libertarians. Politics. The viewers might have picked up that we have an occasional <laughs> difference uh, in policy preferences, the two of us. That does it for our show today. Tomorrow on Rising, Craig Scott, a formerly incarcerated actor, will join us to discuss his experience with the First Step Act. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We had a great time today. We hope you did as well, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Bye.